¿Estás cansado de oír siempre lo mismo y escuchar la misma canción una y otra vez? Pues te damos la bienvenida a los podcasts de Autentia Desarrollo, donde os acercamos las mejores charlas técnicas de la comunidad. European Conference on Software Architecture 2018 Finding our way in the software wilderness by Michael Killing I think that can people hear me? Okay, very good. Well, welcome to the second day of um, EXA. Um, it gives me really great pleasure to introduce Michael Keeling um, as the second keynote. Uh, I've known Michael for a long time. He was actually a, a student of mine at Carnegie Mellon as a master's student, and uh, he took my software architecture class uh, as part of his core uh, requirements. And um, shortly after that class, or towards the end of it, he came to me and he said he wanted to do an independent study in software architecture. And I said, well, okay, wh what do you want to do? And he said, well, I want to write a book on software architecture. And I thought, wow, for a, a master's student to decide he wanted to write a book right away, he's either crazy or brilliant, but we better find out. To be honest, I still don't know which of the two he is. <laughs> Um, but he did eventually write a book, and it's, it's a terrific book, I think. Uh, I think many of us in, the, in this community have grown up with a, a misconception about uh, architecture that's, that's in, some, in many ways hampered our field, and that is uh, that there's this, somehow there's this uh, architect out there, this well-trained architect who's omniscient and makes great decisions and all of that. And if only the world could produce more of these, these people, um, the systems we build would be even better. Um, but I think that ignores the fact that architecture is actually something uh, that needs to be understood by many, many people at different levels and in different stages. And, and Michael's been a real champion of, of thinking about uh, democratizing architecture, if you will, making it more accessible and, and relevant to, to everyone. And so, um, so I think this is a really important perspective here, and I, I'm very eager to see what he says about it. As far as facts go, uh, Michael um, left, uh, when he left CMU, uh, did various things, but worked for a search company that was eventually bought by IBM. Um, the company was called Verissimo, and they had a very uh, interesting way of doing search, semantic-based. Uh, it was eventually picked up, as I said, by IBM and, and eventually got folded into the Watson um, search um, uh, team there. And now he's, he's changed jobs. He's working at Lending Home, um, which lends money to people. And Michael has told me that if you want to take out a loan, don't talk to him after the, uh, after the talk. Um, well, without further ado, let me, uh, let me introduce uh, Michael, please. Let's welcome Michael. Hi. Uh, so my name is Michael Keeling. Uh, and uh, I guess before we get started here a little bit, I just want to say thank you to the, uh, to the conference committee, uh, especially uh, Jennifer and Juan, who yesterday uh, helped me get some clothing because my bag still has not arrived. So I talked to, uh, talked to Jennifer about this, and the very first thing she says is, oh, you got to go to the mall. You just got to get some clothes. Uh, and so, you know, my new best friend, Juan, takes me in his car down to the mall. And what do you do in, at the mall? Try to pick out clothes? Fashion show! So you pick out, some, pick out some jeans, you pick out some pants, and now hopefully presentable and ready to give a talk today, uh, which is going to be on uh, finding our way in the software wilderness. 
All right, so uh, the, let's see here. So as a metaphor, okay, software, when it even gets to be slightly large, can be very jungle-like, okay? You can find yourself, you know, dropped in the jungle, trying to find your way around, and, you know, you're just being shredded by vines or, you know, getting lost in the deep depths of it. You know that you have something to do, uh, but it can be very, very challenging. Uh, yet some people still somehow manage to kind of get through things. Uh, we still manage to ship code. Um, maybe you're lucky enough on your team to have an expert guide who can take you through, uh, through things uh, like uh, Rebecca. Uh, most of us, however, are not that fortunate. Uh, and so, I don't know, what techniques do we use to kind of move around through this, uh, this jungle-like software uh, world that we've got? So with this metaphor in mind, I'd like to explore two questions today. Uh, one of them is how do, uh, how do people navigate through the world, the physical, actual world, and hopefully, when we learn something from that, maybe we can apply some of those lessons to how we can, uh, how we can share ideas in software, uh, software architecture and software design just a little bit better. Uh, yeah, so the hypothesis that, I've, that I'm working with here is that humans, us, are going to navigate through abstract software uh, using similar cognitive methods to what we would do um, when we're going through a physical landscape, you know, just the real world today. All right, so with that, let's jump into kind of a brief foray into cognitive science, which I am not a cognitive scientist, but I, I have read an article or two, so now I'm not fully qualified at all. But we're going to talk about it anyway. So, uh, okay, main focus here. So what's going on in your mind that allows you to get from point A to point B? How do you figure out where you're going? There's two big theories that, uh, that show up when you're kind of reading about these topics. The idea of cognitive maps uh, and, or cognitive landmarks. Okay, how, what's the mental model in your head as you're trying to, to move uh, from different locations? Okay, so imagine you're out in the wilderness uh, and you're trying to find your way to a cabin. Uh, the theory of the cognitive maps is going to say uh, you have uh, created a kind of top-down bird's eye view of the world. You understand exactly, you know, as if you're looking at, uh, you know, a Google Maps uh, view of things. You understand where everything is, and if you understand the location of where you are within this map, then you can say, oh, well, obviously, you know, based on the angle of the sun and where I'm headed, uh, the cabin I'm going to is, you know, 300 meters east or something, right? So you can use that information to navigate. So that's one theory, okay, is that we've got this, this map that we build, and we use that to figure out where we're going. All right, an alternative theory uh, is the theory of the cognitive landmarks. And the idea here is that instead of having this top-down view of the world that we build, instead you're taking these snapshots, these first-person snapshots of the world as you see it, okay? Uh, so you might say, um, uh, oh, I'm supposed to take a left at the, you know, at the sign, and then I'm going to hike until I find a big rock with a, you know, a T written on it, uh, and then the cabin that I'm going to is at the you know, the top of the mountain next to a waterfall, right? So you would have these landmarks in your mind, and that is what you're actually using to navigate, not, you know, these reference points, not some kind of uh, map of the world. All right, uh, rats, okay. Uh, humans can't tell us anything really about what they're thinking, or, or at least we, we do a very bad job of uh, describing what's going on in our minds. Rats, on the other hand, also do a bad job, but we can do experiments on them. Okay, so, so we're able to uh, understand better what they are, um, uh, or we can test uh, different ideas on rats uh, in a way that we can't easily with humans. Uh, and to put this idea, uh, these, these two mental models, uh, to the test, um, 
uh, cognitive scientists have created the, uh, this contraption, the Morris water maze. Okay, uh, and you can see here two, two basic trials with this. So uh, you, know, you drop the, the rat in the water, kind of milky opaque uh, water, and they swim around, and eventually they, they're, they're trained and they know how to reach the platform safely. Right? So that's the goal of the maze, is to reach this platform. Right? So let's, uh, let's dive into this real quick and take a look at an experiment. So uh, start off with uh, our tank filled with this kind of opaque, milky water, uh, so the rat can't actually see anything that's beneath the surface. Okay? They can't see the platform. Uh, or any other contraptions that might be underneath the surface. Okay, that platform is hidden just below the water, okay, and that, that is the goal that the rat is going for. In this particular experiment, there's also a number of reference points that are placed around the outside of the tank. Okay. Uh, for the training portion uh, of this um, experiment, they hide, the researchers hid, a portion of the maze. Okay, and this will, I think, become uh, apparent in a moment why they would do this. Uh, yeah, and then they train the rat over a series of trials until finally it reaches the goal consistently uh, every time. Okay, uh, at this point, you know we have to ask ourselves, what is this little critter thinking? You know, what's going on in his mind? Okay, has this rat, in training on this maze, uh, created a bird's eye view? You know, uh, a map of the uh, of this of this tank so that it can find the maze, or is it looking at these reference points to decide? You know, oh the you know, the triangle is here and the square is there, so I need to, you know, the platform is just below this, right? Uh, okay, so to put that one to the test, they, uh, the researchers would expose that uh, portion of the maze that they had hidden before, and then they moved uh, our little rat friend here over to a new mysterious portion of the maze, okay? At which point, uh, if the rat is, you know, if has indeed created this map in his mind, uh, in its mind about how it's going to get uh, to the platform, should have no problem, you know, seeing these reference points and then deciding, oh, I'm in a new starting position, you know, I go this way, right? Or uh, if it's using landmarks to navigate, uh, it is going to um, see the triangle or these other reference points from completely new perspectives. It'll become disoriented and lost, and it will behave as if it is a completely new maze. Uh, and that is actually indeed what happened. So they dropped the rats in the tank uh, in this new location, and they, it was as if it was starting over from square one with training, okay? So rats. Uh, turns out these uh, rats using cognitive landmarks, most mammals, it turns out, use cognitive landmarks as well for, for navigation, okay? Uh, it turns out honeybees also use uh, landmarks uh, for navigation. Uh, similar experiments, setting hives in locations, rotating those hives, the bees become disoriented and have to re-navigate the entire space to figure out where their uh, food sources are. Uh, we have indeed experimented on humans with this as well, using uh, virtual reality, um, uh, and found similar results. And in fact, I'm going to experiment on you right now, and we're going to hopefully see similar results with this. Uh, okay, so for this experiment, um, I'm going to show you some objects. Uh, your job is to memorize those objects, and then I'm going to cover them, remove one of them, and you tell me what's missing. All right? So pretty, pretty simple, I hope. It's still morning. Is everybody like uh, awake and stuff? <laughs> okay, good enough. Uh, all right, let's let's do this. All right, so I'm gonna remove one of the objects now, and you can just tell me which one is missing. Car. Right. So I took the car out of that one. 
Okay, so we're going to do this experiment again, and this isn't quite a perfect perfect experiment, but uh, it's good enough for today, I think. So uh, let's go ahead and cover these up again. Can't make it too easy. Give you a count here. Cup, cup. Yeah, the cup was missing. So I actually rotated the objects that time, and. Uh, let's see here. So I heard a nice chorus reaction. Car, toy car. Uh, very timid handful of people saying cup. Uh, it, in you know, running and practicing this test, usually uh, the way this has gone down is exactly you know, what, uh, uh, how you all reacted. Uh, everybody pretty much immediately picks up the car is missing. And then it takes another couple of seconds to notice that the cup has been missing. Uh, that slight rotation right, threw off uh, any landmarks that you had available to any reference points that you had for where the um, missing item was, okay? So humans navigate best using cognitive landmarks. That was kind of the uh, approach to, uh, to doing uh, to that, that first section there, okay? All right, so that's interesting and all, uh, but how can we use this information to uh, help us design architectures better, okay? Um, so I'm going to share some practical tips and observations based on working with uh, my teams at IBM. Uh, and I guess it helps at this point since we're going into a bit of an experience report to say a little bit about myself, though. David um, uh, did a pretty good job already. So graduated from Carnegie Mellon uh, a while ago. I've uh, been working at IBM for the past seven or so years. Uh, and most of the um, information we'll talk about today is based on my experiences uh, with my teams at IBM. Uh, as of three weeks ago, I started working at Lending Home. So uh, what we're you know seeing today, I'm hoping to get to apply again uh, in that in that setting as well. Uh, and I did write a book uh, that captures some of these ideas as well. Uh, so when we talk about architecture, a lot of times we do talk about maps, uh, which is kind of what set me on this on this path uh, thinking about these ideas. So, touch you there. Uh, to talk about maps. So we'll talk. We'll say things like. Uh, oh, I want to get a 10,000-foot view of the system, right? Uh, and then we'll say, oh, I want to zoom into a specific module, in this case, the east coast of Pennsylvania, right? Could even zoom in further. Uh, we talk about uh, putting uh, different views that let us reason about things in different ways, much like you can uh, with a map, right? In this case, a, a topographic-style map that maybe lets us show city versus vegetation or something like that, okay? Uh, we could even do views for different stakeholders, right? Uh, this is a view of Pittsburgh that is, uh, I don't know, meant for tourists who rent bikes uh, so they can get, get around a little bit better. We even put legends uh, in, our, uh, in our diagrams, right? Straight, straight out of maps, map making, right? Uh, and what I'm proposing and what I, what I hope to share with you today are some ideas uh, around you know alternatives to this uh, architectural cartography, right? So this this idea of architectural map making, um, and uh, specifically, um, yeah, these, these things. So creating landmark snapshots, leaving traces, telling stories, and then maybe some ways that we can live in our architecture. Okay, so let's start with this first one here. Okay, so um, recall, right? So Cognitive landmarks. What we're talking about with this, what we're talking about with this, is this idea that we are taking snapshots, kind of first-person snapshots of the world, and that's how we best navigate uh, navigate through um, through through landscapes. Okay. Uh, and what I propose is that when we do create views of the architecture, 
they should show us where these landmarks are. And I think that there's a lot of different ways that we can do this uh, or uh, perhaps do this, uh, do this better. Uh, so, you know, let's look at this uh, diagram that we were kind of picking on before a little bit. Uh, so there's actually a lot of hidden information here uh, if you know what you're looking for or if we as architects draw it in slightly different ways. Um, let's see here. So the very first thing, uh, and, and this is a cleaned up version of some, some things that we would draw uh, on, our, uh, on my team at IBM all the time. Uh, so first thing that, that is kind of hidden in this, in this uh, diagram is there's actually a, a, an interior pattern here. Uh, so you know, we have a basic API tier, some business tier, algorithms tier, and then it gets down to a, something close to a data tier. Okay? Uh, what's really interesting about this is you know, drawing the diagram in this way and making it known that this is a, you know, a, tiered, uh, a tiered pattern that's at play is when teammates talk about this, uh, you actually see them gesturing and you see them referencing. You know, they'll talk about, oh, and the data comes in and then it goes down to my service, uh, you know, service D and does something, but we need to get it down to the search index over, you know, down below here, right? That gesturing to me is an indication that people are grabbing onto that idea and they're using that as a, as a hook to help explain the system uh, and, and internalize these ideas, okay? which kind of comes to the first point. Your patterns are landmarks, okay? They're not just, uh, they, they're a vocabulary for us, but they certainly are also landmarks and, important, and an important piece uh, for helping people internalize, uh, internalize the designs that we're trying to share, okay? All right, the, let's see here. Let's look at this again. So we can actually slice and dice this diagram a, uh, another way as well. Uh, it turns out that there are three teams working on this, and the way that we have this drawn uh, is uh, different groups, uh, the services for different uh, groups are uh, uh, together, right? So it's easy for a person to see uh, when I'm working, you know, where's my work unit and what is it, what is it actually corresponding with? So um, we can provide a lot of context, uh, but then also with that context, show people where they are in the world. Uh, uh, which kind of comes to, you know, the next point. So helping people and teams see where their work applies is another form of a landmark that we can offer, right? So it's not just a diagram. We're actually showing, you know, you, your contribution goes here, right? All right, uh, kind of a, let's see, our last one. So another way that we can do this is to um, show uh, different um, reference points and things. So here's a, I don't know, a heat map kind of idea. And we've used this to talk to product management uh, or within our teams themselves. Uh, so we can show people that, well, in this case, Service D is really awful, really difficult to maintain uh, by whatever measures you choose to use. Um, the, uh, we can use this to kind of show, you know, perhaps the evolution of a system, saying that, oh, once we're, you know, once we replace the worst component, you know, it'll look like this, okay? Uh, so creating these relatable reference points, okay, through perhaps a series of views or by, by putting different information on top of it is another kind of approach that we've used on my teams to, to help make these ideas real. Uh, and what ends up happening with this is, yeah, people uh, start referring to these services uh, using, uh, I don't know, slang like that, you know, horrible service, right? Everybody knows which one the horrible one is or the, 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 uh, the, the really crummy service. Uh, so these, uh, yeah, these reference points you create those hooks that people need to relate to these ideas in, in different ways, okay? Uh, all right, uh, I'd like to talk about... Uh, Leaving traces next. So this is actually an idea that comes from uh, this wonderful book uh, that was recommended to me by uh, Rebecca uh, on trails. Um, 
and uh, a trace. So what is a trace? Uh, a trace is a visible mark left by the passage of a person or an animal. So as we're moving through the world, we leave things behind. Uh, and if we leave enough things behind, we'll eventually create trails that others can follow. Okay? Um, here's some examples from the real world uh, that we see. Uh, well, if, if you're an outdoors type, uh, you'll see these types of things. So uh, a couple of different types of traces in this picture. Uh, the first one that's in the foreground here is the signpost that somebody jabbed in to tell you where the, where the trail is. They specifically wanted to say, you know, uh, you're supposed to go this way. So they left a trace for you to follow here, kind of a, um, an artificial one, if you will. Um, off to the side here, there's also a blaze that's been painted on the trail, right? So a little bit, little bit more subtle, but also very important. Uh, and probably the most subtle was the only natural trace, the natural byproduct of people moving through this area, and you can barely see it in this picture, but there is a small footpath there that has been kind of trodden on by you know, the, that vegetation uh, as people have moved through the trail itself. Okay? So these three things together give a clear indication that uh, if you're on the Trollstua Trail, you're supposed to go that way. All right? So architects leave traces too, and there's a lot of different ways that we can leave traces. Uh, probably the most obvious uh, is uh, in the code, right? So anytime you're interacting with the code itself, uh, this is a, you know, a trace or a mark that you're leaving upon the system, okay? There's a lot of different ways that we can do this as architects, uh, leave, leave good traces as architects. Um, creating, uh, using an architecturally evident coding style is probably the most important, uh, and that's probably a talk uh, unto itself. Um, the basic premise is you know, in its simplest form, uh, you want to be able to see the models that you've created, say on the whiteboard or, or that you've diagrammed, in the code itself. Okay? So in its simplest form, it might be uh, if you have layers, if you have a business layer or a, or a client layer or something like that, uh, you should have a package that is the you know, business layer. Uh, so you can kind of trace into the architecture and see it in the code. Uh, good naming is extremely important. Uh, and um, I uh, can't, uh, can't overemphasize that enough, just having good names for the, the classes or the packages or the modules that you're dealing with, uh, methods, uh, and, and so on. Um, comments are also uh, a very amazing opportunity uh, for architects to leave a trace. Um, I don't have a good example with me today, but uh, the best comments are the sort that are describing not just what's happening, but why it's happening, right? So as architects, this is our opportunity to point to the other documentation or to point to references uh, so that um, as people are coming across our work, uh, they're able to actually uh, stand a chance of understanding the architecture. Tests are another fantastic example, uh, uh, both uh, unit tests and functional style tests, uh, or not functional style, but functional tests. Um, this is your opportunity to kind of show how quality attributes are supposed to manifest or how uh, the behavior of the system is uh, so intended to be interpreted. Uh, we saw some great examples yesterday from Rick about uh, version control uh, and how you can harvest uh, not only the comments that people are leaving in the version control system, but also the, uh, the way that we're inter interacting with version control, and that can tell us things uh, about the architecture as well. Uh, and then finally, the um, domain-centric domain design. I, I kind of hesitated, not domain-driven design uh, per se, but really what I mean by this is taking a problem-focused stance uh, and um, using the terminology of the domain uh, within the code that we write itself. And in, in my experience with this, this is a very natural and easy way to get people empathizing with, uh, with our users and with our stakeholders and really engaging with the problem, right, naturally through the code. 
Right? We don't have to bludgeon them with, uh, um, uh, with meetings or, or training or anything like that. When you're reading code that is already kind of talking about the domain itself, people take note and they, uh, they uh, start to internalize those ideas. All right, so those are all examples of uh, kind of naturally left traces or, or traces that we could leave naturally with a little bit of effort uh, on the case of, uh, in, the, in the case of programming. Uh, probably the best example of a, of a trace that we can leave that takes a little more, uh, uh, let's see, a little more artificial is a, uh, an architecture decision record, uh, which um, we've been using extensively on my team for the past, uh, I don't know, going on two and a half years, I guess. Uh, okay, so architecture decision records are actually not a, not a new idea, uh, but they've been popularized relatively recently by Michael Nygaard. Um, and the way he describes it is, uh, basically just a, a short text file that uh, captures a, a set of forces in a single decision that is in response to those forces, okay? Uh, yeah, it's funny. So uh, these uh, decision records have been, I think, reinvented every six to eight years for the past 20 years. So 2011, I don't know, I'm about on the right cycle here to kind of be bringing them back again, I suppose. Um, maybe they'll stick this time. Uh, all right, so let's see an example of one. So. Uh, Let's see here. So this is, uh, this is a, an ADR that is saying we're going to use a particular library. So we've made a dependency choice in this case. Uh, and um, so, yeah, so we can break this down a little bit here. So uh, basic pieces for this. Um, so at the beginning, we have some kind of context that is describing uh, different forces at play and some of the surrounding business, uh, business context uh, or other um, architectural drivers that might be relevant uh, in this case. Um, Let's see here. In this, in this case, we're describing a situation where the uh, previous version of the system was much looser, uh, and the, um, the uh, architect uh, of this particular system uh, left to go to a conference, uh, and they came back, and the system was in shambles. Uh, and so we're trying to um, uh, hoist in a, uh, a library, in this case a framework, to prevent that from happening ever again. Uh, and that actually is the decision. So we'll use the pipe and filter library uh, to organize all application logic uh, for the, this particular thing called a training agent. Okay, uh, let's see your consequences of this. So, um, you know, we've made a decision and then naturally there are gonna be some consequences to that decision, both good and bad. Uh, let's see, in this case, we're talking about things like uh, decoupling. Uh, we're talking about uh, how, how concurrency is controlled. We're also talking about things like training necessary to make sure that people actually know how to use the, um, the framework itself. Uh, and we're talking about trade-offs, right? So uh, negative things that could come about because of this. Uh, yeah, and this, this particular example comes from uh, an experience report that we just published uh, this uh, past summer at the Agile conference. Um, I think there's a video about that as well, so. Uh, all right, so over time, uh, recording decisions as they're made, we ha end up with a nice robust decision log that shows you know, the complete history of um, the complete history of the, uh, of the software system, uh, or at least everything that we remembered to record. Um, so uh, we found that this is a really fantastic way to um, engage the team in decision making, distribute ideas as they're, as they're being discovered, um, and, uh, and uh, create a, a history uh, which uh, turns out to potentially have benefits beyond just the project itself. Um, so for example, we are noticing that uh, 
there are opportunities for harvesting old uh, decisions as, as new patterns, patterns in new systems as well. So some really interesting stuff with ADRs. Um, one of the good, you know, one of the greatest benefits, I think, though, of ADRs has been this uh, ability to kind of involve everyone on the team. So decentralizing the design authority of the architect and getting more people involved in the design process. And uh, cut the cut the slides from it so we can just talk about it real quick. But what you can see here is the past uh, just short of two years uh, of uh, ADRs that we've contributed to our chunk of uh, the Watson Discovery product. Um, and you can see in the beginning, uh, so I'm the big chunk that's kind of gray on the bottom there. Uh, you can see that uh, in the beginning it was basically just me. I was the only person, you know, doing this practice. Um, we started off very controlled and kind of a controlled way, training a few other individuals to also start using this technique and thinking about these things. Uh, within about six months to a year, uh, you can see that the rest of the team is starting to contribute to the design uh, in different ways, to the architecture in different ways. Um, so, uh, so that by the end, uh, it's getting to the point where uh, I am no longer the primary, primary decision maker on our team. I'm really just watching the ADRs come in, reading them, staying aware of what's going on, uh, but letting, letting my team really engage with the architecture itself. Okay, and I think this is important for a couple of ideas. Uh, the biggest one being that um, you know, we're getting more people involved in the design, which means they're taking more ownership over the architecture and hopefully understanding what's going on so that we can avoid um, some of the, um, uh, what was it Rick called it yesterday? The uh, eventual accumulation of uh, architecture flaws, right? So hopefully we're avoiding tech debt this way uh, by getting more people involved. So, and, and that is the whole idea, right? So leave enough traces and you'll create a trail that other people can follow. And that's really what we're, what we're going for, as many traces as we can leave throughout the system, okay? By whatever means that we can. All right, so we write almost no documentation on my team. Uh, we have the one slide deck with the, uh, a handful of the diagrams that I showed. Uh, otherwise, uh, we basically just tell stories about, uh, about the architecture. Um, uh, we leave the traces that we talked about, uh, and then we, we supplement that with a lot of storytelling. So we draw on the whiteboard a lot. We talk about how, how that happens. Uh, you can see uh, two teammates here are uh, redrawing, uh, redrawing relevant views of the architecture, uh, and we're about to do a question, comment, concern workshop here to try and uh, decide how to, to make changes. Okay. Um, we do a lot to encourage this kind of storytelling. Okay. So we uh, specifically focus on the user a lot. Uh, the, um, we have a handful of personas uh, that we identify, and we use those personas' names often. So we'll talk about how is this going to help Deb, uh, the developer, right? Or how is this going to help Ernesto, the end user uh, of an application? Um, we even invented a, a persona for ourselves, which we call Harry, right? The, uh, the overworked uh, engineer. So. Um, uh, Harry is oftentimes used to talk about, in a user-centric way, uh, quality attributes, uh, especially maintainability and testability. Okay? Uh, we sketch a lot. So uh, one of the great things about the IBM office in Pittsburgh is it is basically wall-to-wall -wall whiteboard. Uh, and so everywhere you go, you know, we can sketch where, what we need, when we need it. Uh, and that is the primary mechanism that we're using for, for capturing ideas. Um, I think a very important thing that we do on, on our team that makes this storytelling work well is taking turns. Okay, so it's not always the same person getting up and telling the story. Uh, it is um, uh, uh, everyone on the team. So uh, each person is kind of taking a turn or playing back uh, what was just said, uh, uh, things like that. And 
when I say storytelling, I, I really mean it, right? So we'll talk about not only, oh, the, you know, this is how the, the system works, but also the uh, crazy turn of events that led to deciding that, you know, this microservice was going to be this way or commiserating about some decision. So it's the, you know, the technical stuff, but also uh, the non-technical things that, uh, uh, that we talk about and, and share, uh, share often. One thing I am interested to see since I've uh, left that team, unfortunately, is, uh, you know, sadly, because I do love them, uh, since I've left that team is how things uh, continue now that I'm gone. Uh, and uh, one of these ideas, or I guess one of the risks with what, uh, what I'm proposing here, or what, the way that we operate, is this, this idea that the oral history, it really has to be kept alive, right? So if, if you're not actively telling these stories and actively working on maintaining that oral history, it's going to collapse, okay? All right, so the kind of last idea that I want to share based on our experience, uh, based on our experiences IBM, uh, at IBM is, is uh, perhaps the most speculative, but I think there's some interesting ideas here. Um, specifically, maybe some different ways that we can live in our architecture. So I wonder if, you know, these uh, abstract landmarks that we're talking about, if there are ways to, to bring them into the physical world a little bit. So um, here's a picture uh, of my desk uh, at IBM. Uh, we have one of those really nice modern open, off, uh, you know, open office concepts, uh, which can be extremely noisy, so you have to get good headphones, but it also has huge advantages. Um, one of the biggest ones being um, that uh, I can see everything that's happening, okay, just from, just from, my, uh, just from my desk. So, uh, let's see, I don't think the animations are gonna work here, but when I look to the right uh, of me, um, Bunch of uh, bunch of desks. Uh, this person uh, is working on uh, the, these people here are working on the uh, core search components and the core uh, passage algorithms that we have. Uh, this person is working on our front end REST facades, uh, so the the REST APIs that our public user uh, public end users are operating on. This person back here is working on DevOps and our primary platform interaction. Okay, when I see different individuals talking to one another, I know that there are integrations happening. I can actually see it, and it's really cool knowing that that's happening. Uh, especially when, you know, Chuck back there in the back, when people are clustered around his desk, you know something bad is, is happening. So uh, always something on the platform. Uh, off to the left, uh, you know, I've got a, a group of people who are working on our, um, uh, some of the core search algorithms, uh, another set of, of core search algorithms, and the, the training uh, side of the house. And then way, way back in the, in the far corner there, uh, if you kind of peek through the window, I can see our offering team, the product managers. Basically, I've got eyes on our business concerns now as well, um, which is pretty fantastic. Again, if they're not there, then you know something is probably going down. So uh, you always want to see them at their desks uh, so that there's no trouble happening. So that's only kind of one way uh, that I've noticed that we can make architect the architecture real and kind of take this these ideas and, and make them manifest. Um, but I think there's a lot more that we could be doing. Um, so one idea, very simply, could be creating more physical, uh, taking these abstract ideas and making them more physical, so having physical representations of these things. So this is a chemistry kit that they use for uh, um, teaching organic chemistry and how to make molecules and the rules for that. I don't see why we couldn't have similar physical manipulative, uh, manipulatives for software. Um, the Lego Serious Play uh, product line has been really interesting for uh, business processes. Again, this seems like it could be something neat to look into. Um, 3D printing, right? Like, uh, why can't we print out our architectures and just hold them? How cool would that be? 
right? Uh, I, I don't know of anybody who's even trying or experimenting with things like that, uh, which would be kind of neat. Uh, and of course, like, why can't we go into our computers, right? Uh, you know, it would be fantastic. It's like, oh, Flynn, the architecture, which is so beautiful. It's like, oh no, architectural violation, stop it, right? It would be wonderful. Uh, or, or maybe not, but uh, in all seriousness, right, like so the Iron Man, uh, Iron Man computer, right, we're, we're actually not too far off from being able to have things like this. Um, we've got um, technologies like the, uh, the HoloLens or uh, Magic Leap, uh, which in the next couple of years probably are going to make things like this at least plausible for us. Um, I don't know, this is going to require some, some thinking. Uh, on our part for adapting these kind of traditional 2D approaches into 3D worlds, you know, 3D um, environments and things. Uh, and I'm, I don't know, I haven't heard anybody talking about stuff like this, so it might be kind of cool. Um, all right, so I'm gonna wrap things up here a little bit uh, and uh, we can chat for a while. Yeah, probably coming in short, but I had no idea how long it would take. Um, okay, so questions we explored today. So. Um, how do people navigate the world, and then how can we use this knowledge to better des uh, to design architectures better? Okay. Um, started off with this hypothesis that the humans kind of navigate through abstract landscapes, uh, probably using a similar approach that we do uh, for physical landscapes, uh, and we learned that uh, we do that by using cognitive landmarks, so not these these cognitive maps. Okay. These ideas, I think, may explain uh, why some teams are able to get away with creating less documentation than, other, than others. So if you're doing a good job of creating these landmarks, then maybe you don't need to explain everything in documents all the time. Okay? We might be able to get away with doing less things if we do some of these ideas that I'm suggesting uh, a little bit better uh, or really dedicate uh, to, towards doing them. And I guess kind of another possible conclusion is I really wonder if you know, the best designers, the best architects that we see out there, I wonder if they are already doing this and just don't realize it, if it's a subconscious kind of idea, okay? Uh, if they're, they're kind of translating the software systems into, into these landmarks already. Um, I have no idea how to prove that, but it seems, it seems plausible. So uh, the abstract world is not limited in any way, right? So design in this case is really, you know, the landscape is only, um, is limited only by our imaginations here. So we've gotta be careful about constraining uh, the way that we create these landmarks. And I think that we, uh, yeah, so uh, with my teams, we've discovered a couple of different ways that we can do that. Um, creating snapshots, leaving traces, telling stories, and um, figuring out ways that we can kind of live within our architecture itself. Um, so yeah, the uh, create landmarks uh, so others can follow what you're, what you're doing. And then hopefully we can get more people involved in the design and understanding it, uh, uh, understanding it better. So hopefully I've given you a couple ideas to put in your silver toolbox today. Uh, and uh, yeah, thanks for your time. Hi. Hi, Michael. Thank you for the uh, interesting talk. Uh, I do have a question. Uh, your analogy of uh, this architectural landscape. landscape. Uh, in my mind, uh, when I'm navigating through the world, I try to get to some place, and then women are typically using a landscape, right? That's how, how we do it, or guys do that too. Uh, but 
But that navigation is with a goal in mind. But in the architectural management, we don't have a place exactly, you know, like we needed to find. So I, I just have a little bit of hard time of finding your analogy, you know, uh, be be um, kind of like useful for managing the complexity inside of. Uh, and then I also think that the concept of uh, architectural landscape you are talking about uh, wouldn't wouldn't we already have a lot of landscapes in? Uh, I mean, uh, in this architecture, like the higher higher level components, wouldn't that be already a natural uh, landscape? Like uh, people will know that that was the component we try to create, and then it may be break down, but we all know, know where, where that landscape is, right? Yeah, so a couple ideas there. So first one Thank is you. humans follow landmarks. At least that's what the science tells us. So I don't think there's anything about men or women that precludes like kind of one gender or another for that. Um, I think the, the big joke is uh, about asking for directions and I don't know, maybe that's just me. But uh, uh, yeah, so, um, yeah, so I think this would apply across to everybody. Um, the, the main thing here, so yeah, so do we have a destination in mind? Do we know where we're going? Um, the, somebody did, right? Because somebody made some decisions and started going in a place. The question is, does anybody else know where the system is going? And really, that's the, that's the focus of um, what I was trying to share, is how to bring other people with you on that journey, right? So. Um, Somehow, some decisions were made. Uh, you know, maybe they were even codified. Maybe they've been implemented in some way. Um, that doesn't mean that anybody else understands them. Uh, so the architect, uh, the architecture in your mind, right, doesn't necessarily um, isn't necessarily in anybody else's uh, heads, right? So, um, yeah, what I was trying to show is some te techniques to kind of naturally uh, get those things out of your head so that others could follow, um, you know, follow the, the destination that you were headed towards, if that makes sense. Um, not convinced. It's okay. We can chat later. <laughs> hey, Michael. Thank you. Is it on? Okay. Thank you. Uh, Michael, uh, I know that you live in both worlds. You live in the architecture world, but you also live in the agile world. I totally agree with you that every so often ADRs come back in, in some form or another. People recognize the value of documenting architectural knowledge and all that stuff. Um, and I know there's a big discussion uh, between the agile world and the architecture world. Like if you ask an agile team about documentation, they look and you're like, like you're crazy. Um, in your experience, like because you live in both worlds, what is the status of that discussion, fight, whatever you want to call it? Where does that stand? Do, can we work together? Are we, are we not? Compatible? Oh, I, I think it's over. I think it's been done for a while. And um, so George wrote the, um, George Fairbanks wrote the, um, uh, what's it called, the foreword for my book. And as he was going through it, he asked the same question, like, what's, what's the deal with this, you know, the Agile stuff here? Uh, so I actually did a, a keyword search. The word Agile doesn't appear in my book at all. Um, it's, uh, the conclusion that I have to that was basically, like, that, that argument's done, it's been done, we're, you know, past it, I think. Uh, there is no architecture in it. Like, it's just making good software. It's good design. Um, so I, I don't know. Uh, I guess we could talk about specific techniques and whether that agile mindset is you know, promoting or, or not. But I think everybody sees the value in architecture. Uh, the question is, what, what do you mean by that? So uh, do you have to do an ATAM, or do you need a full 
you know, um, I pick on ATAM. I don't know why. I just realized what, ATAM is like 20-some years old or something. Like, that's kind of crazy. Uh, anyway, so um, don't know why I'm picking on the, the oldest method ever. But the, um, yeah, so like do you use one of these like traditional style methods that were designed to work with, um, uh, you know, a certain type of stakeholder in a certain type of context? Or do you do, um, I don't know, different approaches, right? Um, uh, that, that probably is the more... The better debate, I guess, to be having, or the better discussion. Uh, oh yeah, I think the agile. Agile is the way, right? Like, and and it's even to the point where agile has become the new waterfall, right? So agile is like so far, you know, so now that it's like crusty and old, just like waterfall was before, right? It's the new uh, the new thing everybody hates, um, and uh, and architecture is important, and everybody kind of agrees with that. How we get that, I think, has a lot of room for growth, but. Um, Uh, Robert Fabrizio from Israel Lab Solutions. Um, the question I have a very good, uh, interesting presentation architecture. This dichotomy between landmarks and maps, right? I observe this like uh, in Brazil, for example. Most literate people we use landmark for navigation. You go to this mango tree, then you jump over the bridge and then turn left, right? But if you remove the mango tree, they, they are lost, right? Like what you said. But when I came to America, then no, nobody used landmark. Everybody had maps, right? And it was, uh, it, oh, we can navigate maps. You look at civil engineers, they don't look at landmarks. They have a map before they start building the system, right? So my question to you is, is landmark based a statement to the primitive stage you are in architecture design in terms of literacy, in terms of uh, the, the vocabulary we have, the communication, the education, and so forth? Yeah, so perhaps I should have shared a bit more context about uh, my particular team. Uh, that probably would have been beneficial. So in our case, um, I think we're able to get away with a lot of things for a number of reasons. Um, one of them being that we have several constraints from a platform that are already kind of given to us. So we are developing microservices that are deployed to a Kubernetes uh, cluster. Um, we have uh, different, um, let's see here, database constraints or data constraints that are kind of forced upon us. Uh, and then we have different uh, scalability, availability requirements, things like that, that are already established and decided by choosing something like Kubernetes as our cloud OS. Like, there's just a way it's done. Right, there's, there's really, those are uninteresting decisions uh, to be made, like the number of, number of replica, I don't care how many replica there are, right? Like we need enough to be available, but not so many that it doesn't cost too much, right? Um, the rest of it, when we're talking about microservices themselves in, in this particular case, um, kind of two approaches. I think focusing on the domain and discovering the, the real problem is much, much more interesting, uh, but also realizing that we don't know everything that we're going to know, but we still have to ship something uh, to start getting value sooner. Um, so yeah, I guess you could, I wouldn't characterize it as, as primitive. We're not building a bridge. We get to try again, right? We actually get to try again multiple times. Uh, and um, we're looking at software delivery and, and software development more from the perspective of uh, discovery and exploration and kind of designing as we go uh, than from uh, uh, than from kind of the, the kind of having a full holistic view. Now that said, it's not, um, I'm sort of painting a characterization of, you know, uh, uh, full emergent design. It's also not that either, right? So as I said, there's kind of a, a framework that has made a lot of decisions for us. 
Uh, we've already chosen some, some constraints. Uh, and then we do spend a lot of time talking about APIs and kind of domain boundaries for the different services and things. You know, should this be a service, should it not be? Um, within, within a service itself, we're looking at a very small amount of code usually. Um, I don't know, less than 100,000 lines. Uh, so I guess our microservices aren't that micro. But uh, the, um, uh, it's a story for another day, I suppose. But uh, the, um, th those conversations start the, the same way uh, a lot of times. So what's the prevailing kind of pattern that we want to have? How do we want to capture that? The first thing that we usually do is, when spinning up a new microservice is to sketch out the scaffolding. So um, we can get out some paper or get on a whiteboard and kind of draw, oh, there's going to be some layers here, and we're going to have some, some packages that go this way, and these different components are going to be in that way. Uh, and then the very next thing is to, you know, less than an hour later, lay out the code to get a basic kind of end-to-end -end example of what that's going to look like. Uh, and then from that point on, that point forward, you know, we are, um, uh, you know, the, the effective architecture is kind of in place, and now it's just a matter of putting the meat on the bones. Um, so, I don't know, in this case, uh, obviously I, I guess the mileage is very, right? So in this case, we're able to get away with a lot of these ideas. Um, but I, I still think uh, we could push these ideas a little bit in other, other areas and other contexts and still get some good benefits. Um, so this isn't, you know, fine-grained SOA only, right? Um, so following up on your uh, uh, landmark metaphor, so I assume that obviously this has certain limits, no? So once you have something so big, then the landmarks stop working. So you probably need to uh, establish a mixture between cognitive maps or real maps and landmarks. Would you agree to that or do you have different thinking in that? The other question I guess uh, um, is, what do you do when you have, okay, you have one team that has created, I don't know, small team, and they have left their landmarks, but then you need to integrate with another team, or the whole team disappears, or you need to transfer because you're working, some a different team takes over this. How do this new team lead, deals with this existing landmarks? Because most of what you're talking about is about a lot of culture, and you know, how your team establish that culture of living traces. Now, these, these traces will be very particular to the, I don't know, the, the culture of the team. So what happens when you switch the team or you need to work with a different team? Yeah, so I'm about to find that out. And so maybe I'll have an opportunity to give a, a talk about my experience with the, this new company I've just started with, <laughs> which I'm thinking about those very ideas. Um, you know, I've basically been dropped into a new jungle and now have to try and figure out where everything is. Um, uh, which is fascinating, right? Because the very first thing I did was, ex you know, some of these exact ideas, like sat down with, with different people and had them like, hey, tell me, tell me what's going on. You know, just open-ended question, just to try and shake some stories out of them to see what was happening. Um, all right, so how big does this go? I have no idea uh, how big this, like how big of a system you can go. Um, what I can tell you is that within our group within IBM, we had the most code per person out of any other team within our office. Okay, so um, these techniques allowed us, I think, to scale far beyond uh, what other groups were able to do, uh, either by not using these techniques or by using other, other, I guess, more traditional kinds of ideas. Um, so I think you can stretch it pretty far. Um, I don't know how far it goes until it starts to collapse, right? But, uh, but I think you can take these ideas pretty far. Um, the real 
question, I think it seems, is, um, or the real problem that you're pointing out, I think, is the storytelling. What happens when you lose that critical mass or, you know, or um, everybody leaves, maybe, right? And that seems the, like the storytelling, I think, is really what gels this whole thing together, right? Um, is how do you know you're supposed to be looking for these landmarks in the first place, right? Um, and uh, that would be the thing, I think, uh, that uh, where my team probably could have done a better job supplementing with documentation uh, in, in different ways. So it could have been blog posts, uh, or it could be perhaps more formal documentation. Uh, but it would have been written much, much later, I think, in the, um, in the life cycle, uh, if and when it was required. So um, I think early, early extreme programming talked a lot about uh, the, the mothball documentation. Right, so um, you know the kind of the thing that you write towards the end, uh, just uh, just so that you have uh, all the ideas captured in one place. Um, that would certainly be something to, something to look into. Um, we've experimented a little bit with uh, architecture haiku of kind of capturing the ideas on kind of a one page, you know, doing like a one page summary. Um, that that has had you know mixed results. Uh, seems to work in, in some cases as well. Um, yeah, integration with other teams. Like we certainly need more formal documents uh, when we're interacting with other groups, uh, depending on where they are and how easily we can access them. Um, so I'm certainly not saying you know throw all the documentation out, but at the same time, you know under certain cir circumstances, I think we can get away with a lot more. And even for the documentation you do write, I bet it can have a lot more bang for the buck uh, if you're using some of these other techniques uh, to show people kind of once they're in in the system, you know where they are and. and and how to get around. Okay, uh, I have the microphone for someone. Uh, thank, thank you very much. Um, very, very interesting and very clear insights. Um, I was wondering what you mean by this uh, architecturally um, evident, I think you call it um, coding style. And the second uh, very, very short idea maybe you can comment on, what about um, a, a kind of uh, Pair architecting as a, a vehicle for uh, passing on knowledge. Yeah, so ar architecturally evident coding style was proposed by uh, George Fairbanks, and you should definitely check out uh, his book, which goes into a lot of detail on that. Uh, Simon Brown has also uh, expanded on it quite a lot uh, and has a lot of practical advice uh, uh, for that particular technique. Um, I'm a huge fan of pairing. Uh, we do uh, pair architecting, we do pair programming. Um, we've been experimenting with mob programming. Um, I guess in a way, I wouldn't call it mob architecting, but we definitely do that too, I guess. Uh, everybody kind of crashing on a whiteboard and, and working out a problem. I'm a huge, huge fan of that stuff, uh, especially when the pairs are rotating, okay? And it doesn't have to be only pair architecting. In fact, when I'm pair programming, it's the best opportunity for me to inject architectural knowledge, share insights, and, and um, kind of nudge people along towards thinking about these, these um, bigger picture ideas. So yeah, huge fan of pairing. It's like the superpower, it really is. Michael? Yes. <laughs> um, thank you for your interesting talk. Um, I think uh, what you told us is also applicable to the world of enterprise architecture. I'm an enterprise architect myself at the Dutch Central Bank and um, uh, we used to make diagrams as Archimate. I don't know if you know Archimate. It's an architecture modeling language, but it's one-dimensional. Uh, it, 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 it doesn't tell people anything. Uh, so users do not get it when you show them an, an Archimate drawing. 
So what I what I used to do is is put layers on top of it. For example, um, um, recently I used the color coding depicting the different departments that own a certain system. So I made a picture of a system landscape with more than 20 systems, and uh, I, I, I gave it colors according to the to the owners of the system. And then I got a lot of reactions and commands. And uh, so, yeah, doing that kind of stuff is uh, is. is is probably these are the landmarks for for people in this organization. Yeah, that's. Do really you recognize cool it? Yeah, that's that's fantastic. Yeah, the um, uh, yeah, it, it does seem that way. And, and like, I'm kind of, I guess, trying to take some science and apply it on some reflection of my own a little bit here, right? Of like, why are these things that we do seem to be working? Um, yeah, that sounds that sounds really cool. Two um, more. I can see we have a lot to talk about. <laughs> uh, but uh, one of the things that I think is interesting to consider, and I'd like to hear your opinions about it, Michael, is that whenever I first encounter a system and as a consultant or someone joining a new team or whatever, I inv inevitably try to sketch something of my map of understanding. So it's not like I'm... And people tell me the landmarks, but I'm still trying to orient myself to what they have. Um, so, so I think I do both things. Um, and when someone tells me something is an important landmark, then I listen. But I also create an overall map to remember. Otherwise, the landmarks don't mean anything. So anyway, that's just something that, that I've done is I think I'm doing both. And I've observed people doing uh, one of the things about cognitive maps, you know, when, you know, people using mind map when they're doing exploratory testing or the cucumber team is doing mind maps of what they're doing and their design as they're doing it at the same time. Anyway, they're creating maps of where they've been or where they're going to understand things. But one of the problems is, and so here's getting to my question, Whenever I create any sort of architectural cognitive map, inevitably it's not going to be kept up to date. And I'm, I've always been okay with that uncertainty. And that's one of the problems, you know, when we have these documentations, if you do the coloring and whatever, and someone takes all this time to do the architectural work, and then it's, and then it's no they're worried, well, it's not, not accurate anymore, but dealing with the certainty or uncertainty of your of your maps is, you know, something I think that you know is hard for people to reconcile. So I think you need to do both orienteering as well, you know, with landmarks. But you ha so how do you balance that? Because I'm okay with uncertainty in a map, but uh, yeah, yeah. So. I don't know, and with the uh, I don't know how to, to do that yet. And uh, my main focus so far in this reflection, anyway, has been on what have I done to you know leave the traces behind, and how has my team used those to help orient themselves and really get that that group moving in a really good direction uh, together. Right, that was the main thing, um, and it seemed to work really well. Uh, and so that was the main thing I wanted to share today. 
uh, with uh, Lending Home, right, having just started there, that's actually the very first things that I started doing. So, you know, whoop, dropped in the new jungle and uh, started asking, you know, tell me some stories about this or tell me some stories about that. Uh, I started sketching some things that I think, you know, um, made sense. And then finding the landmarks, and then once I kind of have those, uh, you know, right now it's really all about like getting in the code, and once I'm in the code, knowing that I'm doing the right things for the architecture while I'm there, right? So making sure that I'm not accidentally violating some constraint that isn't enforced, or understanding the, you know, the, the different has a or allowed to use or whatever relations that might exist. Um, Yeah, the main thing is is like uh, what I noticed is that uh, asking people to navigate only by map, right? So here you go, here's the PowerPoint deck and it shows the whole thing, go, right? Uh, the code turns into a complete wreck, right? It, 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 it does. Uh, people don't really understand the architecture, um, but if, if we can find ways to make it relatable and to help people to um, right, follow those ideas through to completion, uh, we've noticed that the, the end result is significantly better far less technical debt, way more maintainable. Uh, it actually has the quality attributes that we wanted, uh, and um, uh, yeah, uh, seems to work a lot better. Um, Yeah, a dead static map is not very useful, but but it also is sometimes, right? And and I had a couple of pictures in here that were um, uh, I took out because I had no idea that I was going to come up, you know, short on time. But the uh, if you remember like early uh, early explorers and the types of uh, maps of the world uh, they used to draw, uh, very beautiful, very abstract, very uh, <laughs> um, not looking anything like reality. Uh, but those were still useful attempts at explaining the world or trying to describe to someone that there is a thing on the other side of what may or, not, may or may not be a giant lake or river or the edge of the world or whatever, right? Um, right, or getting around the, uh, the, the tip of Africa or whatever, right, for the first time. Uh, they, they drew it distorted, dramatically distorted. Um, still useful, but ultimately um, not as, as good uh, as, um, as other things. Now, could the common person have used uh, a map like that uh, without extremely specialized training and uh, things like that? Uh, probably not, uh, maybe, but if you don't know orienteering, if you don't know how to use you know, an astrolabe or, or whatever the case may be, um, you're probably gonna get lost at sea, right? Um, uh, but I can give you a set of turn-by-turn uh, -turn directions that you know, turn at the, take a left at the stump and keep walking until you find the mountain and then you know, that, and, and you'll, you'll probably make it. As long as the landmarks are there, right, right. Hi, uh, thanks for the thought-provoking talk, Michael. Um, my question is about this last point about living in your architecture. I think it's a great um, metaphor. Uh, I'm wondering what happens, how it breaks down when you have highly distributed teams. So if you have experience with that, do you find that the more distributed the team the more that they tend to leave traces, more information on the project wiki, more emails to each other, bigger commit messages, or, or, or failing that, do you find that the architecture suffers as a result? Because it seems like something has to compensate 
for the fact that you can't have that high bandwidth communication. So, yeah, I think there's a couple of things at play, uh, and I don't know that it has anything to do with distributed. Uh, so uh, Lending Home is an example. One of the very first things that I noticed uh, with, with this team uh, is they, uh, they have very good commit messages, uh, very detailed, um, and they all work in the same office, right? The Pittsburgh office is very, very new. Um, there's a, a handful of remote individuals, but by and large, everyone is co-located. Um, Co-location, I think, in many ways may enforce, uh, depending on the degree of co-location, it may actually enforce the architecture in the same sort of ways. So there was a, there was a while with, um, with Watson Explorer when we had a, uh, a group in Pittsburgh, uh, we had a group in Tokyo, we had a group in San Jose, uh, and then we had a group, uh, I think in Dublin, Ireland, all throughout the world. It aligned architecturally just fine with those, with those uh, distributed groups. Um, so I guess it depends on the granularity as well uh, that we're talking about. But uh, Slack uh, is as good as just talking. It, it's a stream of stuff, and yeah, it has search. It kind of works. Um, I think maybe what's more interesting with that is the Slack rooms. So depending on which rooms people are following or where they are most um, participating the most, that's a way for a distributed team to kind of keep tabs on what's happening where. Uh, very much in the same fashion as I was able to see from my desk, you know, when, when certain groups are talking to one another, what's happening. Um, and in fact, we would see you know, architects using that, uh, using Slack as a way for our distributed, distributed groups to understand what, you know, who's working where, how, how's it going. You know, oh, I wasn't aware of that integration. That's interesting. And things like that. Um, there was something else that you had asked, but I'm forgetting now. But yeah, it's... <laughs> Si te ha gustado el podcast y quieres estar a la última en tecnología, suscríbete a nuestro canal de iBox e y escúchanos donde quieras. Para más información, autentia.com.